Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Our topic today is fair housing and housing discrimination. Our guest today is Reed Wakefield. Reed is an attorney in the firm's Labor, Employment, and Employee Benefits Group. He represents employers and their executives in litigation before federal and state courts, administrative agencies, including the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, and Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Reed, prior to joining the firm, served as commission counsel for the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, or as they are also known, MCAD. Reed, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great. So the first question, we're talking about fair housing and housing discrimination, a very hot topic right now, particularly with the COVID pandemic and just generally. What is fair housing? Yeah, so fair housing essentially just means uh, providing equal access to housing and not discriminating in rentals or sales, uh, whether residential or commercial, or related services. It covers, most importantly, landlords, but also governs real estate sales, transactions, appraisals, and financing, different things related to the the housing world. And essentially, it's uh, rules to not discriminate against individuals. Uh, This is one of the earliest aims of the civil rights movement with the goal of allowing uh, integration of communities and access to equal rights. And what are the housing discrimination laws that apply in Massachusetts? Well, in Massachusetts, there are two major uh, frameworks of laws that apply. One is the Federal Fair Housing Act, uh, which is Title VIII of the Civil Rights Act of 1968. And uh, this was a a landmark piece of civil rights uh, legislation that was passed uh, literally days after the assassination of Martin Luther King and and right in the midst of the riots that followed, right at the peak of the civil rights movement. And this uh, legislation included a lot of other civil rights laws, including uh, federal hate crimes legislation. So it was a pretty big deal at the time. Uh, Massachusetts law that applies primarily is Chapter 151B, and uh, as usual, Massachusetts was a little bit of ahead of the curve on the civil rights laws, and this was originally passed back in 1946, and it's expanded quite a bit since then. Uh, There are also a variety of uh, local laws and other laws that might come into play, but those are the two main ones in Massachusetts. Reed, what are the bases for discrimination, and what is prohibited? So there are certain protected classes that are uh, you know, designated under the laws that you're not allowed to discriminate against. They've been changed and added over the years, and there's different ones under state and federal laws, that the ones I just mentioned. But in, in total, there's a lot of them. There's age, race, color, national origin or ancestry, religion, sex or gender, disability, genetic information, sexual orientation, gender identity, veteran or military status, and then some that are uh, unique to the housing world are familial status, uh, meaning having children, uh, marital status, and uh, receipt of public assistance. And what are the biggest issues for housing providers to consider? Well, really, you know, anytime you treat people differently or make assumptions about people, even if in good faith, you could find yourself in a situation where discrimination occurs, you know, it's important to remember it doesn't always have to be a matter of someone having a malicious intent to discriminate and have something against that certain protected class. So it's important to to keep in mind that good people sometimes discriminate, you know, whether by accident or they're not aware of what the requirements are. So it's important to know the laws 
because they're not always intuitive. And so you have to always be asking yourself, you know, are you treating people equally in, in the services that you're providing them? So Reed, can you give us some examples of common practices that can be discriminatory? Yeah, there's a few big ones in the housing world that uh, get people into trouble, especially, you know, like I said, when they're acting in good faith. Uh, One of the big ones is discriminatory statements are illegal on their own, even if there's no underlying denial of services, that kind of thing. And this comes up in advertising often. And so anytime in advertising, if you, your housing provider or service provider indicates a preference for or against a certain class. Um, sometimes people just do this by accident. Um, you know, for example, um, you know, it might violate the, the you know, or discriminate against uh, based on marital status or having children. If someone puts an ad out there for an apartment, let's say, and, and says it's great for singles or it's a bachelor apartment, great for professionals or a retired person, that could come across as uh, discriminating against people with children. And so it's Im- important for in advertisements to focus on the property you're selling or renting and not on the people that you think it would be a good fit for. Uh, other things in advertisements is to be careful of images. You know, if you put images of people, be careful of what kind of message that's um, conveying and whether you're indicating that you have some preference for one class over the other. Um, other examples of discriminatory statements are false representations. You know, if someone calls and you uh, tell them that a property is not available, um, you know, if you if you make false representations about a property, you can run into to problems. Of course, I- inquiries. You know, asking potential tenants or potential uh, uh, buyers about these protected classes, questions that will lead to you knowing what the membership of protected classes they're in uh, can run into problems as well. Some other common mistakes that come from people just not knowing the law, providers not knowing the laws, one is uh, you're not allowed to, in Massachusetts, discriminate against someone in housing because they receive public assistance. You know, so for example, prospective tenant has a Section 8 voucher that they want to use. A landlord's required to accept that as payment. Oftentimes you see the situation where someone will call up in response to an ad and says, hey, do you take Section 8? And the landlord, not knowing that they they can't discriminate on that ground, says, oh, no, we don't. You know, we just don't want to deal with the paperwork. And oftentimes the landlord just doesn't know a lot about Section 8, right? They don't know what's involved or how to deal with it. And they don't realize that by telling someone they don't take Section 8, they've immediately violated the law and there can be repercussions for for that. Another tricky one, especially in Massachusetts, is the lead paint issue. So there's kind of a catch-22 sometimes for for housing providers, for landlords. You're not allowed to discriminate on tenants based on having children, but at the same time, Massachusetts law requires you to uh, remediate any lead paint that you have in a property in order to rent to someone six years old or younger. So a lot of times you have landlords who will shy away from renting properties to children because they don't want to put the money in to remediate the lead paint that they have in their house. So a lot of the times, um, that's just one of the reasons that a landlord might uh, not want to rent to a family with children. And so sometimes uh, landlords can get into problems there. Another another huge one that um, landlords, a lot of providers will, will run into from time to time is disability accommodations. 
And so a housing provider has to provide certain reasonable accommodations to people with disabilities unless there's an undue hardship. Um, A reasonable accommodation could be a modification to a unit or property to allow equal access to someone who might have some some kind of disability, or it could be an accommodation to a a landlord's policy that they have, uh, for example. And so it's important to, to remember that a landlord has a a legal obligation to engage in an interactive process to consider a request for an accommodation and evaluate uh, reasonable accommodations that they could could uh, grant. One of the always hot topic areas here is in you know if a landlord has a no pets policy, you know doesn't allow dogs on the property, and someone has a dog on the property, and then they say it's a service animal or an emotional support animal, and they have this dog as an accommodation for a disability, a lot of the times the landlord might, you know, again, in good faith, not be aware of their obligations. And so they say, no, we have a no pets policy. They don't think, oh, you know, is this dog a service animal? I have to ask some follow-ups. I have to properly evaluate this. So those are some, some areas. Another one that's unique that comes up a lot when it, uh, with uh, real estate brokers, uh, for example, is uh, what they call steering, right? So when someone comes to you and asks, uh, you know, they want to see properties, uh, a broker steering them in different directions, providing different listings for different classes of people. And a lot of times this is good faith. You know, someone might be aware that you have, you know, certain ethnicity or religion, and they offer you properties that are available in, you know, certain uh, neighborhood that's has a lot of uh, folks from that religion or that ethnicity in them. So it's not always ill intent, but um, it, it kind of perpetuates this uh, segregated society. And so uh, that's something that's important to, to avoid. Exactly. And so what are the steps, best practices that can be taken, Reed, to ensure non-discrimination and compliance? Yeah, I mean, there's a few really simple steps that one can take um, just to you know, make sure they're aware of, of what they're required to do and kind of prevent these issues. One is just by... Um, implementing a simple policy for your business, especially if you have employees, to follow. You know these can serve as a helpful reminder and parameters to ensure that you're providing consistent and equal service, and then also to, to hold employees accountable for following these these guidelines. Um, you can put up certain postings, and and some postings, anti-discrimination posters are required in certain sales offices and leasing offices. You can consider putting statements in advertising about your your fair housing practice. You know that can help you. Also, training again, uh, particularly for employees, it's important to keep in mind that the employer is likely going to be liable for the acts of its employees. So, if the employer, you know, the business owners, for example, and managers are aware of of these laws and everything we've discussed, these pitfalls, it's important that you train employees to make sure they're on board and that they're they're complying. Another big one is documentation always, and so taking good notes about what a potential uh, tenant or, or client their requests are, what their parameters are, the information given by a client. So you can let that guide the, you know, whether it's a real estate search or what apartment they're interested in and any denials, you know, note the reason for the denials, you know, keep records of this because when you do find yourself in a situation of trouble, oftentimes it's after the fact and you have to go back and kind of put the pieces together especially in the housing context where these could be kind of transitory interactions that you have with with folks, just by keeping good documentation will really kind of keep you ahead of the game. So the kind of money question, 
what are the consequences, the legal consequences of discrimination? Yeah, and, and the consequences can be quite significant. And this is why housing discrimination, I think, is such a, an important issue, because a lot of times very minor things can blow up into really big, big uh, issues for, for um, providers. And so there's a legal process that someone who feels like they were discriminated against can follow. They can file an administrative complaint with either the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination in Massachusetts or the U.S. Uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, and, um, or they can file a lawsuit in state or federal court against you under any of the laws that we discussed. And then liability could be bigger than you think. And, and keep in mind, like I mentioned, an employer could be liable for conduct of its employees, and they can be on the hook for kind of these little comments that an employee might make. And then importantly, the like you alluded to, the remedies are money damages, right? So money to compensate the individual for um, either out-of-pocket expenses or emotional distress, pain, and suffering of having been discriminated against. These can vary quite a bit depending on the facts. There can be fines uh, against a provider. There can be injunctive relief that uh, you know agency or court issues to prevent a certain practice or, or correct a certain practice. And then importantly, not to be overlooked, there's a a reputational and business impact sometimes just by having a complaint filed against you. It looks bad and to try and keep up your your reputation to to earn business can sometimes be damaged uh, by having these complaints. So it's definitely something that's worth putting in a little bit of effort on the front end to to both understand your obligations, understand the things that you can do to to kind of keep you out of these uh, sticky situations. And so it it is a critical step you can take. Now, getting into just a little bit of your work at Myrick O'Connell, how does all this fit into your work at Myrick O'Connell in the Labor and Employment Group? So I'm, like you mentioned, I'm in the uh, Labor and Employment Group. So virtually all of my work is, is employment management side, employment work. I had the opportunity to gain quite a bit of experience with one of these agencies that enforces these laws and had a lot of direct uh, experience with housing discrimination. There's a, there's a lot of overlap between housing discrimination and employment discrimination, which is my primary uh, field. Yeah, so that's kind of how it fits in. But housing has a lot of intricacies and a lot of uh, a lot of little differences, both in procedure and the law. And so, you know, it's uh, an area that fits into my more general practice. Great. And what uh, was your position there? Uh, so I was commission counsel. And so I was one of several attorneys for the commission. And my prim- primary role was prosecution of uh, complaints that received probable cause findings. So these were um, complaints that individuals who felt like they were discriminated against filed. And after an investigation, the commissioner decided that there was probable cause that discrimination was was likely. And they go on to the next process in the administrative uh, adjudicatory side. And so um, most of my work was handling prosecution of those cases, uh, both in the employment context and in, in housing matters. Great. Well, Reed Wakefield, we want to thank you so much for joining us on on air with Myrick O'Connell today. Lots of good information, and particularly right now. How can folks contact you if they have questions or concerns about labor and employment or fair housing, housing discrimination, or anything that you are active in? The best way is um, you can visit the firm's website, myrickoconnell.com, and and all my information is on there if you want to reach out to me. Uh, All the information from my colleagues are out there as well, um, so that's probably the best, best way. 
Terrific. I want to thank you again for being with us. On behalf of attorney Reed Wakefield, I'm Howard Kaplan. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. 